a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. So in this episode of the podcast, we continue our spotlight on the PhD program here at the Darden School of Business with an interview with Kirsten Martin. Kirsten is the William P. and Hazel B. White Center Professor of Technology Ethics and Professor of IT Analytics and Operations at the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. She's also an alum of the PhD program here at the Darden School of Business and recently connected with Kirsten. Talk a little bit more about her background, how she decided to pursue a PhD, what led her to the Darden PhD program, and what she's been up to since she completed the program. This is a super interesting conversation, particularly if you are interested in the intersection of technology and ethics. So without further ado, here's my interview with Kirsten Martin. Kirsten, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, How are you doing? Where are you calling in from? Oh, I'm calling in from Notre Dame. So I'm at the University of Notre Dame now, and I'm in South Bend, Indiana. Well, actually right outside in Granger in the suburb of South Bend, Indiana. Um, that is a, that's a beautiful, beautiful campus, uh, Notre Dame. Oh, it is. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's, it, what's Indiana like in the summer? Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, it's like our good season and the fall. The season, yeah. We're, we hit it out of the park in the summer and the fall. There's a nice breeze all the time. It's low humidity. It's usually low 80s, gets down to low 60s at night. And then, um, but then you have the winters and that, that's just very different. So that's, you just got to gear up. So that's, you just got to get ready for it. Well, all right. Well, two, two nice seasons. Not, not so bad. Um, yeah, no, not bad. Is football fever in full flower yet? Like, are people starting to anticipate the football season at this point? Is it still too early? No, I think, well, yeah, I think it's a little bit too early here. Yeah. Okay. I was just curious because uh, um, having been there one time, I walked around the campus is just, you know, just to see all the things they've got what mm-hmm. touchdown Jesus and this whole, whole mm-hmm. deal and tourist groups, like just people who've come not even to really oh, look, yes. at, look at this, not even to visit the school, yeah. but as like prospective students, but just to visit the campus. It's, yeah. Uh, as a tourist destination, that was a different thing for me as well. Like, so I've, uh, yeah, I went to University of Michigan undergrad. I'm used to people, alumni coming back to campus and everyone being decked out. I think the the bigger change for me coming here versus any other place I've ever been is that it is a separate tourist destination that people want to come to. Um, and they're whether they're driving out in the Midwest or stopping by Chicago or wherever it might be. But this, you do get people that have no affiliation in Notre Dame and just want to stop by. Well, I appreciate that. I think I could be considered one of the, one of those people. I was out there for a work event, but I was also just intrigued, just curious. Right. Um, right. So, um, well, tell us a little bit more of, about you. Thank you so much for for being here on the on the podcast. Let me let me start there. And um, Darden is in the process of relaunching its PhD programs in a couple areas: the quantitative analysis area and also the strategy, ethics, and entrepreneurship area. And mm-hmm. and you are a PhD alum um, and one, I want to thank you for taking some time to be on here, but also it's been fun, you know, having some of these conversations around the launch of the PhD program and getting to talk with some folks who did the program and are, are out there teaching at other business schools. So um, tell us a little bit more about you. Um, like what I'm doing now or, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I mean, so I'm at Notre Dame. I'm, uh, I'm actually in the analytics group in Mendoza in the business school. 
and I teach technology ethics. So I'm a professor of technology ethics here and I do the ethics of data analytics for teaching. I also run a technology ethics center at the university level. So I'm the director of that, what we call ND Tech. And so those are kind of like what we do, I do right now. My main areas of research are privacy, analytics, and ethics, just generally, and then um, within business. So always looking at corporate responsibility around the analytics products we create and use, privacy issues that they face with their consumers or users, anything around technology in general, if that makes sense. I imagine there are quite a few people that want to talk to you or seek your <laughs> expertise at this particular moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's popular now. It wasn't always popular, you know, like, so it's not as though I had throngs of people around me as I was like doing my research back 20 years ago. So I think I was an oddball at the time, but um, it's worked out, you know, that this privacy thing is really taken off. So I think, um, so now you're right, business schools now are coming around to seeing the ethics of data and the ethics of analytics as being an important area of uh, like study. So either for their students or in their PhD programs or wherever it might be. So it is definitely something that it's not onesie twosie places. Like a lot of places are trying to figure this out. Yeah. It's, it seems kind of fundamental to any company that traffics and in human information data, how we engage with websites, however you might want to think about this. There's just so much you can know about a person and what do you do with that information and who, gets access to it? Do you sell it? Do you monetize it? All this kind of stuff. I mean, there's a, right. there's a lot of questions to think about here. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, and I think in some ways, it, yeah, in, in a lot of ways, it's not that different than the way we used to think about the automobile industry or the oil and gas industry or the tobacco industry. And that when it was first getting going, we didn't have a lot of um, norms around, values around what people should do, regulations around what they should do. And um, eventually they got a little bit too close to the edge of harming people, you know, uh, you know, whether it was automobiles or steel production around pollution or tobacco or oil and gas. And then eventually we kind of stepped in and had to say, okay, this, this is actually what the values are that you should be having either through the market kind of sending that signal or eventually regulation. And so we're kind of at that point right now where it's not just regulators, but just the general population is looking at some of the ways that they're gathering and using location data. And all of a sudden we're having a very different conversation now than we did just five, 10 years ago within like, you know, we uh, did normal conversations. Like if I'm out at a party, people are much more suspect versus just like, well, who am I to say, now they're saying like, how did they get my location data? And they, they know where I'm going and what I'm doing. Um, and even within scholarship, you had a lot more people around privacy, the use of data that were just saying, well, you know, Kirsten, you're so negative, you know, like, and they were very like pro-market and really there's no rules in this area. And I was always like, there's always rules, you know, there's always norms. And now eventually, you know, even within scholarship, you're seeing a much more robust conversation about what these companies should be doing with their data or what they should be doing, you know, with their analytics products. So I do think that there's been a shift in the last five to 10 years around this area. Well, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, let's look at other products, cars, tobacco, you know, where you start with that market versus where, mm -hmm. how we know the market now in terms of regulation mm -hmm. and everything. 
like this is the arc of, you know, mm -hmm. kind of a heavily regulated industry um, right. or what would become a heavy, heavily regulated industry. I hadn't right. thought about it in those terms. Uh, and that's actually why it's super important that business schools start to talk about it more. So right now, the conversation happens within computer science, sometimes philosophy, um, sometimes the law, and that's helpful. But then you also, within law, you have specialties where you have someone that just works on privacy law or just works on AI law. And they have a tendency to know and see it in one specific area, whereas in within business ethics, we've seen these same arguments before and can say this is no different when the steel companies refused to stop polluting and had to be criminally prosecuted to listen to the EPA, right? I mean, like, so they've, you know, the old adage of GM was, you know, they would go out of business if we had safety regulations, like clearly they didn't, you know, they, they, they survived, you know, they, so this, this kind of argument against regulations or even norms is normal for an industry to say, oh, I really liked having no rules. Like, why are you giving me a curfew? You know, they're kind of like little kids. And so I, I just think that it's a normal part of this is now it's up to scholars, hopefully within business schools more and more to get in there and say, what should the norms and the values be in this space? And then also, and then, and have an open conversation around public policy and say, and what, what what's the market not going to fix? Like, where are there places where regulations are going to be needed? And how can my research help inform that? That's super interesting. We'll, we'll come back to this, I, I promise. But I want to talk a little bit about um, how you got interested in pursuing a PhD. So to mm -hmm. rewind back to that moment, did you always know you were going to do a PhD? No, no, no. I... No, I was an undergrad. I was an engineer. I studied uh, engineering at the University of Michigan. And then I went off and I was like a normal person. And I like was coding for a systems consulting company and had a regular job doing my little computer science coding stuff. And then I went and, um, and I was an industrial and operations engineer. So they didn't even have uh, really computer science engineering then. So I was an operations engineer and then went back to get my MBA at Darden. And it was while I was getting my MBA at Darden that I had classes with Ed Freeman and others. And I thought, oh, I think I'd really like to do a PhD. Like I could stay in school forever. These professors look like people I could, I could do that. Like I could see myself doing that. Whereas when I was an engineer, I never really looked at my engineering professors and thought, oh, that's kind of this type of work that I would like to do. And then my second year at Darden, I was fortunate enough to take a couple PhD classes with Ed Freeman. And then I graduated and I had a job in, in web hosting, which was like the big, crazy internet area at the time with back in like 1997. So 99 is when I graduated. And then, um, and then I, uh, well, as Ed would says that I graduated in May, and he says that I called in June saying that I was bored and I wanted to come back and get my PhD. That's what he says, which sounds about right, that I got bored. And um, so I don't doubt that for a second. And so it just by family circumstance, I was married, I got married, I ended up getting pregnant. And so I couldn't go back right away. So I waited about a year or two before I started my PhD back at Darden. Um, and then we moved down, like, and so we lived down in Charlottesville again for uh, four years. And so I, I did my PhD over five years, actually, just because I was having kids along the way while I was getting my PhD. And then I we graduated. So that's kind of my progression to getting a PhD. But I did not go to get my MBA thinking I wanted to get a PhD at all. Um, it wasn't until I was down there and thought, oh, I really like school. I like, you know, I like, I really enjoy this. I like, 
I like always having to be challenged intellectually. Like that's a fun aspect of my job. I'm not, there's, I mean, I could be bored, but I never have to be bored and I get to choose what I study, which is kind of amazing. And, um, and I enjoyed the teaching part of it too. So that wasn't ever a downside either. Well, I'm curious about your background as an engineer mm-hmm. and um, it sounds like the, the work that you do maybe draws upon your background a bit mm-hmm. in, in computer science and doing coding. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also curious about what sparked for you around sort of ethics and Darden being stakeholder theory place and mm-hmm. these classes. I mean, some people might look at that and say, well, is that, that's a little bit different than, than engineering or how, you know, that, that particular discipline. Um, what, what initially sparked for you about those classes or that, those faculty members? You know, I, um, I, that's a good question. Um, I, I think I, someone jokingly said, and I can't remember who, my second year at Darden as an MBA, that I was trying to get a liberal arts degree in my second year because I took all these like, like uh, strategy, leadership, ethics classes. I remember reading Clausewitz on war. Like I just remember reading, doing reading classes with someone there named John Colley. So I was doing a lot of that stuff and. I really think it had to do with Ed Freeman and that when I took his class, my the ethics class that I took my freshman, my first year, sorry, my freshman year, my first year as a Darden student. And it was so challenging um, that in a way, and I, I did think about getting a PhD in operations. Like so that I did, I did think about that, but I I really enjoyed uh, being stretched around ethics. And also I did see the connection between there being all these ethical choices that you're making when you're designing, you know, products or technologies or whatever it might be. And, um, and, and thinking that that was interesting, you know, so I do remember thinking about that, like my application essay, I don't remember what it was, but I do remember writing about technology and ethics and that more we need work needed to be done in that area. Um, but then it was more about data and privacy, just at the time, because that was like 2000. I'm, I'm curious about, was there like an actualizing moment when you realized this is a topic that I'm very, very interested in, like a problem, something you came across where you said like data, privacy, ethics, technology, this is where I want to spend my time. Um, you know, it definitely was not in the PhD program because I came in with that idea. So I definitely, I didn't know what I was going to study. So I can't say that I knew, I just knew in general, I was interested in these decisions that you have to make around technology and how, in, in my words now, I did not have those words in 1999. In my words now, they were value-laden. Like they were, there were values in in the decisions that people are making in very small design decisions. And that kind of interested me. And so, and it turns out there's a whole field that does that work in engineering, but within a business school, that was different. And so that I kind of always knew, but all my jobs were technical. Like, so I was an engineer undergrad then you know, systems engineering in like a systems consulting company and then well, the MBA, but then in web hosting, I was doing all quantitative analysis. And so in product management. So I, um, so I probably, this is the only thing I thought about, like, so all this stuff about like top management teams and leadership and corporate governance is super interesting and pay disparities that people do and 
organizational behavior and what goes on inside the company. Like that's all super interesting about people, but that's so funny as an engineer. I'm like, whatever about the people, like, I just want to talk about the things. And so I think, um, I think that's what kind of, I always thought that was the interesting part of it. Well, you mentioned your PhD program playing out over a period of a uh, sounds like about five years. And mm-hmm. what was that experience like? Um, yeah, I know it's probably hard to reduce five years down to like, mm-hmm. well, let me tell you. But um, nevertheless, uh, I wonder, are there any things that stand out to you? Any favorite memories? Any, anything from that period? Yeah, I would. Um, so I, yeah, I, so a few things stand out to me. So I'll say this, although this is a good thing. And so depending on who's to be this, I do remember in my first semester, thinking I am not very smart. Like I I just am not very smart, but it turns out all doctoral students think that like it's, it's just a normal part of the process because you're around people that have read those same articles dozens of times. They've, they've made all the same arguments. Not that they're not thinking all the time. I don't mean to say that Ben Cat and Ed are not thinking all the time, but that they've covered this territory before. Like they know the arguments. And so you're going through it for the first time. And so you're naturally going to feel um, slow, you know? And so that is, um, you do feel that way. So I do remember that, but that's a good thing because then you're being challenged. It's like the appropriate level um, where you're getting some good feedback, but you're constantly thinking that you need to know more. And so I do remember that. I remember at the same time it being very supportive. And so as an example of how supportive it was, this is a good example of, of, of how supportive it was. So in my last year, I was down, in, we were in Charlottesville and my husband got a job in DC. So I had three kids who were uh, at the time about five, three and one. And um, I had to defend my, dis- I had to write and defend my dissertation. So he took the job up in DC as an assistant U.S. attorney in um, October, I think, or accepted it in August, took it in October. And so I stayed back. And so he commuted back and forth once a month because it was more supportive for me to be in around Charlottesville and in the garden with everyone there, like helping me along, like being supportive, getting good feedback to be able to get to my finish my dissertation, than to like move and get help with the kids. And so it was that seems crazy that to like do the kids on your own, you know, Monday through Friday or Sunday night through Friday. But that was actually better um, for us. Now, now my husband's very supportive. I don't mean to say that my husband's not supportive. Clearly, I wouldn't be where I am without him being supportive. I think it's a more testament to how supportive Darden is as a program. And I I actually say this to people, uh, my niece, when she was looking at PhD programs, like you have to look at, uh, there's like two different mentalities of PhD programs. Some PhD programs just assume that about 50% of the people aren't going to make it past comps. The past the coursework. So you go through your coursework, you take comprehensive exams, and then you write your dissertation. And they just assume they're going to lose people like that. They take in too many. They're not going to be able to advise that many. And they just are counting on attrition of people dropping out. And Darden is not like that. Like there's other schools and Darden's not the only one. There are other schools where they would take it as a failure if they chose wrong, if you didn't make it through. So it's it's the goal is not to see who's going to fail. Like the goal is like, we chose you for a reason. You know, we're going to get, the goal is to get you through, not to see you fail, if that makes sense. And so I think that's a very different mindset when you're working at a place um, for, and that's, that's how Darden is. And there's other workplaces like that too. And I think it doesn't have to be an academic program. There are workplaces like that where they just assume a certain number of people are going to fail 
versus other places like a law firm that wants everyone to make partner. So I think it's just a different mentality. And, and Darden is a very supportive. The goal is to get you through um, and to see what you need to succeed. That, I mean, that's great. And we have a lot of conversations around just the culture sense of community within our MBA programs. And it's a supportive collaborative place, right? So yeah. that, that resonates. Um, yeah. yeah, it was that same way when I was at, when I was at Darden, they didn't even have a curve. So when I was at Darden, um, 97 to 99, as an MBA student, the first time around, it was a very, we all worked in groups. It was very teamwork focused. It was extremely collaborative. So I wonder a little bit about your dissertation. Uh, can you tell us what you ended up writing about? Yeah, I actually, I never did this again, but I, uh, I actually went into the way that a company was implementing a new technology on the manufacturing floor to see how the people reacted. So it was like a qualitative study about um, really uh, that the idea was that if we sometimes talk about like technological determinism versus like technology that's very malleable and you can construct it yourself as the user with the idea being that the users being able to construct it is actually the better idea because it's empowering. And it turns out that people don't like that very much. And so they, they like it when there's a certain amount of determinism, not in the strongest way, but like there's a certain rigidity to the technology um, because when they're able to actually make it malleable, no one, no one wins is the idea. So that was, um, and it was all around like a stakeholder approach to technology. How did you get on that idea? Yeah, you know, I, um, it's a good question. If I remember correctly, I was doing Taekwondo when I was down in Charlottesville and one of the other people from Taekwondo worked at a big GE plant that was north of town. And that was the site where they were putting in a new technology. And I was like, oh, that would be really interesting. And so I went in and interviewed. Um, and uh, I remember <laughs> I remember jokingly, I was like eight months pregnant. And um, I thought, what well, this is a good time to ask someone for a favor because I'd been pregnant before and not pregnant. So I knew how people treated you different when you were pregnant. And I thought, this is awesome. I got to use this to my advantage because being pregnant is not that great. And so there's only certain advantages and they're like, people hold the door open for you. I'm fairly tall. So normally people don't like see me as diminutive and needing help. So uh, when I'm pregnant though, they always took care of me, but that was like 20 years ago. I was like, that was uh, literally my youngest is now 18. So that was a long, long time ago. So yeah, that's what I did for my PhD, for my dissertation. I appreciate the, the sort of twist of that story. Like it starts at Taekwondo and then there's yeah, also yeah, yeah, this yeah, sort yeah. of like calculus so in the back of your mind, like, okay, I got to strike yeah. now. I got to strike now <laughs> before I have this kid because no one's going to care about me once I have the kid. Yeah. Well, um, so you graduate from the PhD program mm -hmm. and then, then where do you go? Well, I knew where I was going. And that's because my husband had that job as an assistant U.S. attorney in D.C. So there are eight business schools in the D.C. metro area broadly going all the way up to Baltimore. And I got a job at Catholic University in management. So I took it. It was a tenure track job. And that was good. I was there for about five years. And then after that, um, I went over to GW, which is kind of like where I wanted to go. And there was a more senior person named Tim Fort, who's kind of a friend of Darden. And he was already at GW. And someone else named Jen Griffin was already there as well. She's a friend of Darden. Like she's around Darden sometimes. And so uh, they hired me there and I was there for eight years. So I was there for a while until 2020. And then 
Notre Dame. And Notre Dame came calling. And so, and that was uh, somewhat of a, I was not looking to move, but they were doing a big push within technology ethics at the university level and hiring across the university. And uh, a friend who I met at a conference many, this is how things work, like a number of years ago around the ethics of big data in Philadelphia said, you know, I know the person that does technology ethics within business schools and her name's Kirsten and her husband went to Notre Dame. So we should call her. And so that's, they ended up like cold emailing me and saying, are you, would you be interested in coming out? And at the time I thought, oh, there's no way my husband at the time was, you know, in the, he was literally the criminal chief of the U.S. attorney's office running 70 attorneys. My daughter was going to be a senior the next year. My other daughter was going to be a sophomore and I had one in college. And I, I just thought, well, I'll just talk about it and see what happens. And then by the time I went out and interviewed in January and met 35 people, I was, you know, it was um, coronavirus hit like three months later. And um, my daughters wanted to leave their high school. Like, they were not happy with their high school. And I thought, well, in the DC metro area, if you're going to go to a private school, you might as well move to Indiana because there's, you're never going to see anybody that you know ever again because it's the traffic is so bad. So we ended up talking to them about it and we ended up moving during the coronavirus. So that April, May of 2020, we ended up moving out to Notre Dame. Well, I'm really curious to hear, I mean, so coming back to where we started the conversation mm -hmm. about technology, ethics, gosh, it's in the news all the, mm -hmm. all the time right now. And I thought, so I'm 41. And I can remember the days when you would go down to the public library uh -huh. and like you'd use the computer for like an hour. You'd get uh -huh. on like web crawler, Netscape, uh -huh. something like that to where we are now. Uh -huh. And um, just the arc of this is amazing to me. And just the amount of information that companies have access to and the amount of data flowing uh, to these companies may have always been this way. Just didn't necessarily seem to be the same uh -huh. back, back in the late 90s, um, at least to me, um, novice that I was. I'm I'm curious about like what are the topics that have really caught your imagination or your attention right now in this, mm -hmm. in this area? Well, and let me just say, just to give librarians a props. So when you mentioned that just randomly about how you used to go down to the local library, but in library studies has been on these issues about like Google Books and access to those computers, like after 9-11 with the Patriot Act and being able to access computer searches in libraries. Librarians and information sciences, which is kind of the big schools, the library schools turned into information sciences or information schools at the big universities now. They have actually been on this for decades. You know, they've been talking about the digitization of books and who owns them and privacy issues within the library and who has access to what books you read and what you search. And so it's it's an interesting place because they've actually been way at the forefront of all these issues, public records data searches and all that kind of stuff. So there's even when in business schools, we were not talking about this. I could always go to information schools and philosophy and law, and they were talking about it. Like, so there were like pockets of conferences where I would go outside my discipline to see what the actual people that were touching this issue were talking about and how they were talking about it in very real ways. And then trying to bring it back within the theories that we use to like, so what does that mean for corporate responsibility? And so just as a point for anyone that, it is extremely useful to not only stay within your discipline within a business. Like I find it very helpful to be very active within privacy law, to be very active within information studies and computer science. And there's no other business 
people there. Like there's no business professors, but they they are tackling these issues like before we think about it. So you're able to almost be at the tip of the spear when we see those things. Um, and right now, so I think there's a few areas where that I think are super interesting right now. I think that I think the issues with platforms and exchanges. So that what I mean by that is anything from a social media company platform, say Twitter or YouTube or Google to um, an exchange like Amazon, you know, like anything that acts as a go-between between two different parties in the marketplace. So it could be a content creator and a viewer, me, the actual user. It could be between the buyer and the seller in the Amazon case. I think that, I think the issue that we face around the responsibility of platforms is really not studied enough in business schools. And what I mean by that is we're used to thinking about stakeholders as consumers and suppliers and, you know, maybe our community that where we are, maybe um, the employees, the top management team, the board, there's a financial relationship between the company and all of those stakeholders. So there's some sort of an exchange, whether it's taxes to the community or whatever it might be, but consumers and suppliers, there's actually a contract. The, The interesting thing about platforms is first that the users themselves actually have no financial relationship, right? The only thing that they're giving over are their eyeballs. They're the consumers for Facebook. If you go in their annual report are advertisers. That's who their consumers are. And so um, that's it's different to think about the responsibility that companies have. One, we used to think just try to think about stakeholders, but now we have to tell them to start to think about and incorporate the needs and concerns of people with whom they get no money, none, no money at all. And so if we thought it was hard to get companies to think about stakeholders where there's a financial relationship, it's very different to talk to them about thinking about people with whom they just worry about their eyeballs and nothing else and no financial relationship. Now, to take it one step further, how do we think about the responsibility that the platform has not to the user, but to the people that are impacted the most by the content who's not the user? So let's just take revenge porn or deepfake porn where a subject totally not involved, not a user, some person out in South Bend, Indiana, is put into an inappropriate video where there's a content creator and a user and other people see it, but the person most impacted is somewhere off, somewhere else, right? And what's, so what's the responsibility of the platform to that person or the group of people, women that are being impacted most by that? Like, so that, that's where even within our business ethics um, theories that we have, we're, we're strained, if that makes sense. Like, so these are, True third parties, you know, the third parties in a way, or let's just say like the recommendations of the insurrection or hate speech online. So the content creator and the watcher, the user might be actually in agreement, right? And so there's actually no harm there. It's actually some third parties. And then just in general, that having that hate speech is actually harming other people who aren't in any financial relationship or even eyeball relationship with the platform. And so that just because going back to the beginning that that's a challenge, it really does challenge us to think through how do you make the argument within our theories of markets and industry and companies that companies have a responsibility to them? I think they do. How do we ground it? What's the substance of that responsibility? What are they supposed to do? What are the limits? You know, so all of that is an area that we need more people thinking about that area. Um, and I just think it's, it's kind of a blind spot for us within business. Now, other people, so for example, 
right at UVA, there's a professor, uh, Danielle Citron, who's one of the foremost experts with Mary Frank at Miami on revenge porn or non-consensual pornography online, intimate privacy and that kind of stuff. And that, so there are people in other areas that talk about this all the time. It's just, how do we convince companies to be more proactive about it and not wait for regulation? So that's an area in general, platforms, exchanges, what are their, what's their corporate responsibility to the different stakeholders that they have? Um, and how do we need to think about stakeholders differently? Well, that's really interesting. I had not really thought about all of the sort of the, the people with whom the company has a financial relationship right. and then these other third parties that like, mm -hmm. you, that you just kind of have to have a general interest in, but they, there's no financial relationship. Would you think about that as like maybe, maybe broader, like kind of thinking about the brand or people's perception of the brand? I mean, is that a fair way to think about it? A company should be concerned about that. So therefore thinking about these third parties? Exactly. It should. Yes. And the, the question is, so it could be the brand. It could be, so I'm not the subject of the video. I'm not in it, but it's still upsetting to me and I care. So I'm less likely to be and uh, go on a site that I think I might see that number one, because I don't want to see that content or number two, I think profits in some way from that type of content. So that type of I don't, you're not espousing the values that I agree with. And so it gets towards brands or the value matching that we like to do. I like to go to places where people have the same values as me. That's like an economist, Robert Frank makes that argument. And so I think that that is, the key is to get the, the people, the policymakers within the company to actually empathize with the people who are being marginalized and see it that way. So some of the people that are being marginalized might not have what good representation in a tech company. So they might be women, they might be LGBTQ, right? Like, so they, they might not be well represented in where the decision makers are so that the decision makers aren't thinking about them as much as who's gonna regulate me next, you know, what's my engagement numbers, you know, those types of things, because engagement numbers go up with uh, bad content. Unfortunately, it does. So yucky content, what you and I might call yucky content actually gets more numbers, which is unfortunate. I feel like that was one of the interesting takeaways, maybe big reveals for people when they're processing a lot of just where we are in this political moment and the mm -hmm. information that people are getting that things that make people upset Mm -hmm. angry, uh, actually produce more engagement, right. um, which is, I mean, it's a strange thing to think about, but right. um, I mean, it aligns with what you're saying here that right. um, so a company would have to say, well, we don't want to do that. <laughs> we, right. we want you to, we want you to take a break. You should step away. Um, right. you, should, you shouldn't watch these kind of videos over and over again. Right. And it's really hard for them because they actually make money. I mean, that's, I mean, so it doesn't, it's not impossible. There are tons of people, as I joke, like not everyone sells vaping products to teens. Like there are always short-term opportunistic ways to make money. Always, always, always. Like, so that's not novel to technology. It's just getting the technology companies to see that what they're doing is the equivalent of making money selling teenagers vaping products, which we now think is bad. You know what I mean? But at the, for a while there, we sold them like bubble gum and cotton candy flavored vaping products to try to get them hooked. And so, and then, and then regulators stepped in and said, you can't make it bubblegum flavored and you can't sell it to 14 year olds, you know? So we kind of like, but for a while there, there's always this like little short-term opportunistic way that we can make a little bit of money. And so the, the key is trying to 
you know, having more people in business schools, professors, you know, making this argument, this is like selling, you know, vaping products to teenagers, you need to stop, you know, I mean, or just moderate it some and, and think about how you might be able to moderate the content a little bit more. That is interesting, because I think one of the things um, that's interesting on the moderation side is, as you've seen companies wrestle with this, like, mm -hmm. It almost feels like the, I'm not sure they have the mechanisms to regulate all of this mm -hmm. stuff, at least right now. It seems right. like they've really struggled uh, with this, the amount of content being generated seemingly constantly by all these users all over the place. I mean, so you see them struggle with the political speech uh, around right. the elections. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. So there's uh, there's two things I would say. One is it's interesting to see the variability across the companies, right? So Facebook is famously trying to be more hands off or promoting more hateful content, right? So that's some of what the Facebook papers came out with was that they aired towards hateful content because it increased engagement. But but you look at like Twitter and it's not perfect. I'm not saying that Twitter is perfect, but they at least were grappling with it a lot more than Facebook. Now, Twitter doesn't have the same scale as Facebook, but they were looking at the same content and making different decisions. So it shows that there is some sort of range across and heterogeneity differences across companies that companies are making these value judgments as to what they want to do around their content. So that was the one thing that you can look back and see and say, well, that's a choice. Facebook didn't have to make that choice. They could have gone the way of other companies that made different content decisions. The other thing that Facebook papers, which if the people listening don't know, this is where a couple of whistleblowers came out in different places. And this has actually been coming out over more than just the Wall Street Journal reports, but like the Washington Post has had tons of internal documentation that has come out from presentations that were given over the years. So this is not just the Facebook papers one time, was that the engineers, and I'll state up from engineers, the engineers internal had come up with solutions where there was less hateful content and slightly less engagement, but they were able to actually stop hate groups from being promoted and getting other people to join them. Because at Facebook, 70% of the people that join groups are from because Facebook promoted them. So it's not as though people are just finding these groups, these hate groups. Facebook is actively promoting different groups and having people join. And so they found that they could mo moderate that content and there'd be a little bit of a hit on engagement, but not it wasn't detrimental to profits. And the policy people came in and said, no, 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 you can't touch engagement. You need to go back, switch it back to the way it was before. But what that tells you and I is that there was a technical solution that they were actually on top of it. So I think what they like to say is like, who are we to say? I mean, this is crazy. It's just the Wild West out here and there's nothing that we can do. But when you see these papers and you see the reports that were created and you're like, oh, you actually are pretty nuanced about the content that you're doing. Like, you're not perfect. Like, they, they definitely aren't perfect about it, but they know a lot more than they were letting on and they were making value judgments with internally about what content to actually promote versus like just even not remove, just downgrade it and not promote it as much. And so one, the differences across companies and two, even within Facebook, you can see them making very detailed decisions. They, they actually know a lot more than they were letting on. I would say that much. And they can do a lot more. It's a matter of getting some of the policy people out of the way um, and letting the engineers make, I mean, I think engineers sometimes get a bad rap that they, they only are doing the most technologically savvy or profit-seeking behavior, but that's every report that comes out from any company 
an internal person with technical knowledge is blowing a whistle and saying, hey, you could do this differently. And it's the law policy people, and I'm married to a lawyer, I love them, but they're coming over and saying, no, 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 no. you need to hit engagement numbers for profit. And so um, they could do more. They could do more, maybe with more engineers. It feels like, um, gosh, I don't want to plunge us into an Elon Musk Twitter conversation. However, it feels like this is, I mean, this is constantly kind of bubbling up. Like, should we be moderating this? You know, and I also feel like there's a sort of parallel to kind of conversation around these companies. Should they be publicly traded? Should they be privately held? Do you get more control as a company over if you're not having to meet quarterly earnings and this kind of thing? Right, right. Yeah, although I don't know if if Facebook wasn't public, if they'd be making any other decisions. I mean, that seems to be their values that they want it to be. Um, I mean, they they more were avoiding down. So they were avoiding content moderation. And I, what I mean by that is not removal of content, but just not promoting it as much. Because according to internal documents, they were worried about Republican regulators. They were worried about the conservative regulators coming in and getting mad at them um, because I mean, a disproportionate amount of the stuff they were going to be um, downgrading was like white supremacist stuff or like hate group stuff. And so, or just like right-leaning material. And so it wasn't for profit, although I guess indirectly it was, but it was more because they were worried about um, upsetting people in Washington. Um, But I think, I do think the Elon Musk TikTok thing is interesting only because uh, there's another, a great um, professor in business ethics, actually, uh, Sunil Betty is his name. He's at Indiana University. And um, he wrote this paper recently on content moderation where he did a study. And what he found was that a little bit of content moderation didn't change the substance of what people wrote. His study is a lot more nuanced than I'm making it out to be right now. And But what it did is it just changed the tone a little bit. So it made them not use like hate, like uh, swear words or anything. But the, the content was the same. It was just that the tone was a little bit different. And one of the findings that he says at the end in like a sentence, but I think it's super important, is that like a certain amount of content moderation actually makes more people want to speak. And what we forget is the lack of content moderation. So the platform doing absolutely nothing allows a ton of like hateful speech, trolls, and they are silencing groups online, the targets of their hate, whether that's whatever marginalized group it is. So they are in effect silencing those people. And if the platform doesn't moderate the hate speech, it's, in effect, letting the bullies moderate content. Does that make sense? Like, so you're getting women or minorities to leave the site because if they go on, they're actually going to be only be trolled or harassed to the point where they want to leave. And so the, the platform is actually making it a safe space so that more a higher percentage of people actually go on the platform. And so sometimes we think that content moderation is anti, has a chilling effect. It, it has a chilling effect on bullies. <laughs> It doesn't have a chilling effect on the majority of the people, if that makes sense. So I think that that's one way that we, that Sunil's piece is really awesome. Um, and so if anyone is interested in it, I think it's great. But one of the things that we can take away from it is this idea that content moderation isn't chilling necessarily. If, if they do it correctly, it's, it chills some speech, but it's actually speech that we might want chilled and that's okay. Yeah, that's interesting to hear you say that. And also just kind of thinking about, particularly around elections, I think there's been yeah. this concern about like, we have this tradition of freedom of speech. How far does that apply here? Yeah. You know, this is you know, this is a public platform, but you have to sign up all this kind of stuff. And, right. um, and but then also there's this, well, what happens? Is it a political act 
for example, for, you know, one of these companies to say, well, we don't like this speech, but this speech right. is okay. I, I, I mean, these are endlessly fascinating questions. It is. It really is. And I think that, um, I, yeah, and I, it's always a lot harder than people think, you know what I mean? Like, they'll just be like, well, you should just let all the content be out there. And it's like, well, really? I mean, there's illegal content that we're constantly moderating. So you don't mean that. Like, you don't think that we should allow gun sales on Amazon. Well, no. I mean, like, so there's, like everyone believes in some content moderation. It's just a matter of like how much and what kind. And so, and 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 really it's up to the platform to decide this is the type of place that we want to be. And because there's competitors, you don't like Twitter. I mean, go on and go on Facebook. You know what I mean? Like if you don't like Facebook, go on YouTube. Like there's there's alternatives to be able to do these types of things. I think that it's just a matter of they each have their own kind of brand, like you talked about before, and the type of speech that you'll find on that site. Well, anything else that you're you're working on right now um, that you'd want to share with our listeners here? Oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, those are the main ones right now. Um, I'm trying to think of, yeah, mainly around platforms and responsibilities around platforms. Like, so that it seems to be taking up more of my time right now and the stakeholders of platforms. So that seems to be taking up a lot more. I mean, I'm always doing stuff around AI and, you know, predictive analytics and what the ethics are of that. I think, yeah. And so uh, around predictions, I do stuff around like power and like who, what, what types of predictive analytics actually reinforce power structures, but that that's not as, um, those are more hidden. So the platforms are more public. Well, um, you mentioned before we started the call that you're actually ahead in Charlottesville in the not too distant future um, for stakeholder theory uh, conference. Yep. Yeah. I'm coming down in a week from today. So in a week, I'll be down at for a week. So I'm there Wednesday to Wednesday um, for a stakeholder conference and see a whole bunch of people. And we all talk about what work in stakeholder theory that we're doing and get caught up and stuff like that. Well, Kirsten, thanks for your time today. Uh, again, for it's been a really interesting conversation, very timely uh, conversation. I want to ask two final questions. The first uh -huh. question is, um, I imagine it, it's got to be probably have a lot of students who are very interested in these topics right now mm -hmm. when you teach in business school. I, I would imagine that mm -hmm. that's the case. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Well, what's it like to have these discussions? Oh, the students love it. I mean, the thing about this top, they've been, they understand these issues in, in such an innate way that I always say that technology ethics, just in general, or analytics and, um, and IS and ethics, in general, is such a young person's game. Like I am way old for this area. And it was only because I was studying it like forever ago. But the vast majority of the really interesting work is being done by doctoral students and postdocs. Like that's where all the action is going on right now. And, and very young scholars. And so like I have a, a group we meet once a month, you know, like of young scholars who are doctoral students or postdocs or young people in business school studying ethics and technology just so we can like uh, help go through each other's papers. But then the, like the MBAs or the MSBAs as I teach them and the undergrads, they have been sorted by algorithms and had their data surveilled forever. Like they understand that their TikTok algorithm is different than my TikTok algorithm in a way that is really hard to teach others. And so when we go through the ethics of data analytics, they, you don't have to be an engineer at that age for people to understand what's going on because they felt it, you know, they know exactly what's going on. And so, and, the, and they want to know the language to use as to why it's wrong. So they, they know it's wrong, 
and they know it's going on or some of it, they don't know all the data that's being gathered about them. And then when they find out it's, I think they really find it interesting to get theories of surveillance or of fairness to be able to say, this is why it's wrong. You know, like to point to something and say, you know, this is why that product is wrong, or this is why that data collection practice is wrong. That's super interesting to think about um, people who kind of grown up with these apps, uh, platforms, yep. however you might want to Snapchat, think about it. Instagram, they've just been being, sorted for forever. Just being part of their experience and how that gives you sort of a native understanding of this in, in a way that, I mean, from, for, I have to say for me personally, it's like something I came to much later in, in life and like, oh, I wonder, it's like more out of curiosity, more, less of like, oh, you got to be on this thing. I think that right. the first time I ever felt that was maybe Facebook when I was in, in right. law school. Um, yeah, I remember when, um, this is, my kid was, my youngest was maybe in kindergarten and they knew when they went on Amazon around Christmas time that to hide, they would obscure by doing fake searches so that when I went on Amazon, I would not see what they were looking for to see my presence. Like, so let's just say when they were looking at Michigan paraphernalia, because I went to Michigan undergrad and I'm a huge fan, they would put in fake searches to confuse the data and the algorithm for advertising. And they knew that at like five or six, you know, and then another one like was on a VPN to watch like a Michael Jordan special when she was eight years old. And I was like, a VPN? She's like, yeah, they think I'm in Germany. I was like, oh my gosh. Like it was, they were just, so advanced that I I was just amazed at how advanced they were and how naturally they knew to obscure the algorithm, like to confuse it with fake data, which is um, something normal now, but like 10 years ago, that was not normal. And so they just, they get, as you said, they're very native to this. They understand it. So do you, do you feel like, and this is, uh, I asked this, this is undoubtedly an impossible question to sort of know, but like, you feel like we can regulate our way to the answer mm -hmm. here, or is this going to have to come from like companies just trying to trying to be better, or some combination of the two? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a. I'm only pausing because I'm in a business school, so we don't think about regulation as the first order. There should be a market solution, and I've written a lot about possible market solutions. I think there are a few places where the market is strained to con to correct it. And, we, and I'll just mention this and it's like a whole other discussion, but like the entire consumer data market that's behind the scenes, like all those ad networks, the data aggregators, the data brokers, like 60% of the internet traffic is people buying and selling consumer data. We have, they're, they're not websites that we see. We don't have, you, they're not sending you notices. You know what I mean? Like there's no way for you to take back your data there's no market forces on those companies. Like there's no natural place for us to say, withhold our business because we don't like what they're doing. Like if I don't like what the New York Times writes, I don't go on the New York Times website. If I don't like McDonald's fries, I go to Burger King instead. Like all these natural marketplaces, market forces, they don't have them as much. They don't have the employees with the pressure on the employees that Facebook has pressure from their employees that their employees aren't pushing back. And they don't have any SEC oversight. So all the natural places in business that we like to see market pressures to correct bad behavior. So that's the one place that I've argued before that we might need to start thinking about putting like a required audit if people hold individualized data, because otherwise they're almost behind a veil where they're hidden from natural market forces. And so my first instinct is market forces. And where is there some sort of friction that we can make it better? 
But that's one place I just don't see it um, without there being some sort of regulation. Um, and so that's something similar to GDPR, but a little bit different. Yeah, I've thought about it a lot. Um, it just as a, a layperson, not somebody who studied the subject closely, as you saw Zuckerberg and all these people go to Capitol Hill and like, you kind of imagine, and you see this sometimes with financial products too, yeah. like the, 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 the creativity, I don't know the right, right. word here, the, the innovation that you see, it's going to outpace that's right. Uh, it, you know, any kind of regulation, they're going to work right. at the margins of it. They're going to find a, a way to skirt it. So it almost has to come back to this, like companies being, being better, doing better, right. appealing to no, no, some no. other I, I totally agree with you. And I used to say that all the time when I would be with my philosopher co-author and she who would want regulation. And I'm like, you know, they're just going to innovate around that. I mean, so if you tell them they can't sell to third party, they'll be like, well, that's no longer third party. I just bought it. I mean, like, so, I mean, how easy is that? I mean, so they, it doesn't take much to innovate around a lot of regulations, which is why I think it's really only when we can't see any market pressure whatsoever to fix something that we have to start thinking about the equivalent of putting in something where the steel company, you know, is selling steel and the car company doesn't care about the pollution in the water. Like, how do you help the people that are getting harmed to, to make the company like internalize that cost that they're inflicting on others? When there, when there isn't any type of natural way in the market, in the market to um, fix it. Well, super, super interesting conversation. Yeah. Last question is, what would you want a prospective student looking at the PhD program at Darden to know about the PhD program? Oh, um, well, we kind of covered it in the beginning, but I'll just say, like, I found it extremely challenging. Um, I found it helpful that I had worked before because I treated deadlines like real deadlines and deliverables as real deliverables. And so that actually was extremely helpful in thinking about who I wanted my boss to be for the next five years or forever. I always joke, Ed's always my boss. So, um, and so I think, it, but it was also extremely challenging. Like I, it was harder because I did not read that type of material before. Some things were easier for me, like Quantitative analysis was easier, but then other things were harder. So reading um, old economists, I found hard sometimes, or old philosophers, Kant or something like that, just because I didn't study that. But I think everyone has like a weak spot that they find within the PhD program. Um, but I also found it very supportive, you know, so I really enjoyed my time um, at, at Darden and stuff. So I, yeah, I mean, I still go back. So it's not like I felt like I was... Um, and it's not a bad time to have kids. I had two of my kids. I went there with one kid and then I had two more while I was down there. So it was, it worked out well. So it worked out fine for me. I should say that, but I, there's never a good time or a bad time to have kids. You just have kids. So that's, I always joke. So anyway. Well, Kirsten, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your expertise with our listeners. It's been fun doing these yeah. PhD conversations because we do get to do a little bit about the PhD program and the PhD experience. And then you get to spend like 20, 30 minutes talking with somebody about their research area, which is such a treat. So I, oh, I, good. So, well, so I'm glad it. I really enjoyed it. So thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you again for, for coming on the podcast and enjoy the rest of your summer. Thanks so much. And that was my interview with Kirsten Martin a graduate from Darden's PhD program and a professor of IT analytics and operations at the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.